I'm fat, see? <laughs> Those pants fit you just fine last month. That was in my younger days. <laughs> so your hair is receding a bit. A bit? It looks like the front of my hair is dying to see what the back of my head looks like. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And today, we're uh, thinking about our lives and uh, <laughs> where, we, where we've come from and how much time we've got left. What are we talking about today, Amy? Well, it would seem that Jay is having a midlife crisis, just like many of our characters. Yeah, midlife crisis episodes. This is something the family sitcom world knows all too well. What are our episodes? We are watching The Jeffersons, Season 8, Episode 5, I've Still Got It, Major Dad, Season 1, Episode 11, See the Hill, Over the Hill, News Radio, Season 5, Episode 13, Towers, and Two and a Half Men, Season 4, Episode 16, Young People Have Phlegm, too. Yeah. So, all new shows to the podcast. Yeah, that's true. These are all shows that we have not covered, ranging from the 80s to the 21st century. Lots to talk about here. So midlife crises, right? We are pretty much square in the age that uh, we're the ones that, that are traditionally thinking about this kind of thing. So what is your experience with midlife crises? Is this something that, that you've experienced? Is it something you anticipate going through? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I feel like big life changes tend to bring these things on. And for some people, it's like the decades, you know, like turning 30, turning 40. We're going to see that in a, in a couple of our characters. And then for some people, it's just like the noticeable signs of age. And I feel like that a little bit of that is true with everybody. So I had a when I turned the year I was 29, I don't have a thing about being 30 or being 40 or whatever. I always was happy to get older, but a really hard year, the year I turned 29, I went through a pretty rough bout of depression and kind of realizing my relationship wasn't what I wanted it to be. And my life wasn't what I wanted it to be. So looking back on it, I definitely would say like that was a moment. But then the next time I feel like I had a moment like that, it was after my divorce, which didn't have anything to do with age. It was just that major life event. Yeah, those sound more like just life crises and not necessarily But that's what I feel like oftentimes brings it on. But I, I think our characters, some of our characters here, it isn't like their lives are stable because that would mean the show would have to change if they weren't. So yeah, I feel like I think about my age pretty frequently. I've done a lot of exercise in my life that has benefited me in terms of keeping me in pretty good shape. But, but uh, none of the stretching that goes along with said yeah. exercise. Yeah, the downside is that all of my jogging on city streets and stuff over the last 10, 15 years have rendered my joints and muscles and bones very crackly and rickety and creaky and uh, things like 
standing up, sitting down, <laughs> walking upstairs, etc., definitely don't come as easily to me as they used to. But yeah, I feel like, you know, we'll we'll talk about it obviously show by show. These characters have some things in common, but they they they're coming at the midlife crisis from different angles. A lot of them it has to do with their sexual prowess and feeling yes. like they're losing their their sex appeal and frankly for better or worse that's not really a concern of mine <laughs> that's, that's not something that that i worry about uh you feel like you lost it a long time ago or I, never had it <laughs> yeah i think whatever i've got is 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 maintaining steady. maintaining steady. for me i think it's more about like sheer distance to death and just like the idea of being in the second half of your life and that the way time passes more quickly as you get older so you know that the second half of your life is going to feel much faster is something that's very haunting to me and just the idea of of accomplishment and feeling like as you get older you know with with my career or my artistic aspirations and stuff it's like as as you get older you feel the doors closing and the opportunities you have to get more realistic about your opportunities and your aspirations and that's what really sort of haunts me and to be honest i didn't see that that much in these episodes yeah we really didn't have a lot of people considering their own mortality in the way of accomplishments i think part of it just has to do with the tv show characters that we're looking at um they either are quite successful <laughs> and are feeling their age or they're kind of on the younger side just sort of having that like oh god wait a minute yeah. i'm 30 i always thought of 30 as old kind of a thing yeah all right, let's get into The Jeffersons. The Jeffersons. We're watching season eight, episode five, and this one's called I've Still Got It. So what is your experience with The Jeffersons? Not much. I mean, it's a legendary sitcom. And as we mentioned in our theme songs episode, that, that theme song is considered one of the best. It was on the top of some of the lists. And so, of course, uh, growing up in the 80s, you know, since we're, we're, everyone's aware now of how old we are, uh, <laughs> you, you couldn't escape this. But it wasn't my thing. And was that, you know, because there was an old married couple and there weren't kids involved? Like, who knows? But this was just not really a big thing for my family. Yeah, well, and I don't know that it wasn't a big thing for my family, but it was definitely, I feel like, before my time, right? Like, this is season eight. Season eight is happening in, like, 1981, 82, right? So I would have been a year old or, or going on two years yeah. old. So definitely a show for grownups that was in that time. Like I was barely watching The Muppet Show yet, you know, at this age. So and it ran for 11 seasons. So I maybe was like, what, five or something, four or five by the time it went off the air. Having said that, this one and All in the Family, where this, you know, this is a spinoff of All in the Family. The Jeffersons were the neighbors of the bunkers, and then they moved on up to the east side yeah um and so 
uh, both of those shows my dad would often talk about. So I'm assuming my parents watched them, but I was too young. You know, I felt like, or at least I feel like, so I have seen in some reruns, but it's interesting, both uh, All in the Family and The Jeffersons were not the type of shows that were rerunning on Nick at Night and Nickelodeon when we were young. It was, those were like the old black and white ones that were rerunning then. And this was still like too recent to be Nick at Night reruns. No, that is true. It was a little too soon for it to be in the nostalgia cycle. And so this is another Norman Lear show, like All in the Family. We talked about this a little last time. The Norman Lear shows have a certain look. And they're, I think they're shot on video. There's a certain cheapness to the production when you compare it to the Gary Marshall contemporaries. The Gary Marshall shows look like a Norman Rockwell painting put on your TV. And these Norman Lear ones, everything just looks a little more flimsy and the lighting is a little harsher. And on some level, even though I obviously wouldn't have articulated it like that, that always bugged me. And I think it, the, the look of these shows and the vibe of them just made it a little less appealing. Well, and so it makes me think because the other Norman Lear shows that we've watched some of, All in the Family and Good Times, right? Good Time, both of those are of like working class families, right? They're they're striving and they're it's hard scrabble. So to me, it made sense that it was like shot on video and the like the interiors are a little more grimy and maybe, you know, a little more cluttered with things and like the space is smaller or whatever. But this one for the Jeffersons, I expected to see that, you know, now we've moved on up, right? We're on the Upper East Side, successful businessman. I expected to see that elevation. And you're right. While the elevation has happened in terms of the settings, right? I mean, we're still in the 70s, 80s, right? So we're very brown. That's just how it is. Lots of wood paneling in the office and um, kind of like brown beige interiors in their home, in their apartment. But there's a scene where Wheezy is sitting on the couch and George is there. And it's that first scene where he's about to leave for work in the morning and having his kind of meltdown that his hairline is receding and he's feeling old and he's 52 and he's not attractive anymore and whatever. And Wheezy's sitting there and like out the window behind her is this gorgeous city view, like really nice apartment high up, you know, where you have a really nice view. So even though it still has that kind of shot on view video grainy look, I don't know that that would be too different from what you could really see on your TV back in the day. So truly, I think it would be the interiors that would make the difference, right? Because no matter what, TVs in the home weren't able to uh, capture the beauty of things that were shot on film in the same way that we can see now on our HGTVs. Yeah, yes and no. I think yeah, that, that's all true. But at the same time, even on the TVs in the 90s, you can, you can see the difference between the ones that are shot on film video. But in any case, yeah, there's just a certain telltale look to these Norman Lear shows that I'm more and more kind of uh, becoming hip to. But let's talk about that first scene. Super sitcom-y, you know, it's just the two of them in the living room, like basically shouting their dialogue to each other. Like he's almost doing a little sort of stand-up routine going right. like, he says, uh, 
do you promise not to lie? Do I look old? And then she says no and says, you promise not to lie. You know, just very sitcom-y, jokey back and forth. And uh, yeah, I have to say, I was relieved when they start talking about how old he actually is. He says he's, she says he's 52 and he says, no, no, I'm 51. Now, I thought this was going to be another case where Carl Winslow was revealed to be 36 years old in Family Matters, <laughs> and I like basically threw up at the idea that I was like eight years older than Carl Winslow. <laughs> so I was really bracing myself for George Jefferson to be like, what? I'm 38. What's the problem? But no, he's 52. So, you know. 51. 51. But yeah, his hairline has long since receded and uh, he's feeling it. He's feeling the... Yeah, he just was feeling sort of unattractive and, you know, wrinkly and balding and whatever. What was the line that he said that it was like his forehead was trying to see the back of his head or sort of meet the back of his head or something like get introduced to? It was a funny little line. But what really struck me about this scene more than anything, again, like I said, not having seen so much of this show, only knowing about it in pieces, is how much the Martin and Gina relationship parallels this relationship like i felt like this could be a scene between martin and gina like in the episode that we watched with the two of them in their living room of an apartment having you know no kids and having this conversation i was like oh wow this like i didn't realize how much martin was really kind of taking on that same dynamic between the characters well yeah we remarked on that when we got to martin that it is pretty rare to have a couple show you know you have your mad about yous you know they're they're definitely around but usually it's a family or it's like a person at the center of the show and then they have a partner romantically and work people and whatever but yeah it is interesting when you just have this twosome now do they not have any kids at all or their kids are grown and moved on Hmm, and that's a good question i thought that they didn't have any kids but i can double check yeah i did notice that that it is just a very simplistic dynamic which you get with archie and edith but again they've got grown kids that can come and go as as they see fit so again very sort of classic sitcom style here we set up efficiently economically no nonsense we set up the premise of the episode george feels old louise has a conversation with one of her friends where she confirms he's not he's not so frisky in the bed lately you know right so when george goes off to work and louise is uh confiding in her friend you know that he's having this midlife crisis he's not he's not as virile she says send him flowers with a sexy note right Right. that's the advice that's what she did roxy roker's character did for her husband and she was like it made all the difference he came home ready and raring to go and i think the key here is that it's like this anonymous note so just like when you notice somebody checking you out like doesn't it give you a little kick right their plan is to do this same thing send the you know send this anonymous note so their husband feels sexy again with the hope that they'll come home and be like, oh, yeah, I'm so hot. I'm going to take it out on my wife. Okay. So, so yeah, I want to make sure that we're clear on what the plan is here. I'm not sure if this one comes pre-ruined, a la my little girlfriend from Blackish. <laughs> um, she says, send him, first of all, and Louise points this out, sending flowers to a man is strange, especially in 1980, 81 or whatever. I don't know how I would 
react to that. You don't uh, want flowers? Again, like I, I, I have received flowers at least once, I think, and I guess it was fine. But that, <laughs> that is a bizarre aspect the of the plan. But so, yeah, she says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send flowers to his office, and the note is going to say, from somebody who finds you very attractive. And I wasn't sure if that was meant to be a coy way of announcing herself and that George is supposed to understand these are from my wife, but she's saying it in this fun way. Or what you seem to be suggesting is that it's supposed to be like it's from an, uh, from a secret admirer. Right. And it's supposed to give him a little spring in his step. Yes. And then you reveal, like, you know, Louise shows up at lunch to reveal that it was her that sent them. And isn't that so sweet? See, I think that's a bad plan. Because if that works, if if the target, if your spouse gets these flowers and thinks oh, there's some random person that has the hots for me and was motivated to send these flowers. And then you find out it was your wife trying to make you feel better. I don't think that is going to have the spring in your step. See, I think it's the same as you signing Scott Bayo and Mayor Adams on all the times you send me flowers. I think it's supposed to be this little like joke where it's like, who are these for? Oh, okay. I'm sure it's from my wife. So that was the first scenario I said where it's not really supposed to be tricking him. It's supposed to be a fun way of sending him flowers. Right. So that, but like for a second, right. You have that like is it oh it's probably just my wife right which is which is what i think that's what roxy roker's trying to tell her to do and that's a louise kind of takes it the one step farther and then what happens though is that she ends up using the same wording that the bookkeeper uses or the assistant uses when she's speaking to him so that's why it gets the message gets muddled but even before that i would say that is a very specific reaction this is like a heath ledger joker type thing where i need them to arrest me and then they're gonna put me in the cell with that guy and then when i stand trial i'm gonna blow up the bomb i put in that guy's stomach like it just requires everything to kind of work out in a special way (laughs) anyway george goes to work His assistant at work is the Fresh Prince's mom, I believe. It's an actress who at this point is in her 20s, and she's a young, attractive woman. Yeah, she, Vernie Watson, she has kind of like recurring characters on this. Not She's never like uh, an official like main cast member or recurring cast member, but she does show up on the Jeffersons quite frequently. Prior to this, she was in Welcome Back, Cotter, and was like a recurring character, one of the other kids in the class class on Mm -hmm. Welcome Back, Cotter. So that's where she comes from. And then we know her later as Fresh Prince's mom. So when George gets these flowers, his thought is they are from Carol, his secretary. Well, she is the bookkeeper for his company. So she's coming in to get him to sign off on a few different things. And um, she, like you said, is in her, you know, 
early to mid 20s. And she catches George checking himself out in the mirror, but looking at his bald spot. And she notices it. And so when she comes back in the next time to get him to sign something, she says, hey, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I'm nothing. I, I'm, you know, I'm just looking at myself. You know, I'm so good. I was just making sure whatever, whatever. And she's like, hey, you know, my last boyfriend was your age. I, you know, I want you to know that, like, you don't have to worry about it. You are a very, very attractive man and blah blah, 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 and like tries to boost his spirits because she notices that he might be down in the dumps about getting older and he's trying to play it off like, no, no, no. And then she leaves and he the his business partner or his like neighbor in the office suite comes in and he's like, I think she's into me. And the guy just laughs. He's like, there's no way that she's into you. Yeah, there is a lack of self-awareness on George's part that is sort of fueling this whole story. And that is like it fuels the series. I think that him thinking he's hot shit is sort of his character. Yeah. And that's the saving grace, I think, behind how a lot of this plays out, because, you know, it, it could come across as pretty thankless or even cruel to the wife sometimes. And I think the the reason why it all is sort of in good fun is because we the audience always know that he's making a fool of himself regardless of the specific scenarios he may or may not be aware of that the other characters may or may not be aware of that so in this case Carol is saying all these nice things to him to make him feel better. And she's going, you don't have a receding hairline. You have an intelligent forehead. You know, she's she's saying all these nice uh, platitudes and things like that. And so, yeah, it it sets him up perfectly to think that she's the one who uh, sent this gift. Or is it the opposite? Is it because he got the gift, he thinks that that's motivating all these nice things she's saying? Well, so first she says these things. And one of the last things she says is that you are a very, very attractive man, right? Well, then the card comes. So he gets kind of like, a, oh, you know, oh, I think she might be interested in me. But he, you know, his business partner or the guy like the the guy who's also in his office suite comes over and he tells him this and he laughs at him he's like there's no way she's interested in you and then the flowers arrive and the card that Weezy has written in the flowers says from someone who finds you very very attractive so that same phrasing very very attractive and that's when George is like I told you and then it's like that confirms it for him so like he has this inkling that she might be hitting on him a little bit and he kind of gets a little like oh look at that. That's really good. I mean, I'm not interested in her, but isn't that great that she thinks I'm hot? You know, I'm hot. And then the phrasing comes, it's the same. And so he's like, oh my goodness. And this is where it kind of shifts. And you're like, what's going to happen here? Because the neighbor guy is like, um, what are you going to do? How are you like, this is a sticky situation. How are you going to tell your wife? And George is like, what are you talking about? No, there's no problem. This is no problem. And then Wheezy shows up. Yeah. Wheezy shows up to say, like, don't you like the flowers I sent you? Well, didn't did anything interesting happen this morning? Waiting for him to tell her. And it's one of these like classic no one's communicating 
openly situations and that's how the rest of the episode plays out yeah he doesn't he is demurring and doesn't want to tell her because he thinks the they're from the secretary yeah he thinks he's like low-key having an affair like sort of you know having this little dalliance looking askew whatever and so he's downplaying it and not mentioning it to her and so louise is kind of like what did they not come or why is he keeping it a secret or whatever or yeah they must not come and so then she goes home yeah because she wants to have lunch with him and he's like oh no no i i already have lunch plans with tom so i'm gonna go with tom because he wants to like think all this through and talk it out over a very liquid lunch by the way they go to lunch at a what looks like a bar in the middle of the day and they have many many drinks yeah and so he comes back to carol and this was the best part of the episode to me is his heart to heart. You know, he comes back to the office and he sits down this young woman and he's trying to, you know, let her down gently, basically, and give her the old, you know, like, oh, you're you're a sweet kid. You know, you you think you like me, but you you don't know what you're dealing with. here. But he never says you think you like me. He always is speaking in like. Uh, generalities so she doesn't get it yes it's super sitcom-y he's just being like really nice and gentle with her and she has no idea what he's talking about and at the end he goes and for god's sakes don't take your own life (laughs) and she's like why would i (laughs) yeah and then it continues when well he he gives her two weeks off and she goes oh "Oh, i could just kiss you and he was like take a third week and she's like oh she's so happy so she has a paid vacation so he goes home to Wheezy and it continues like just more sitcom-y non-communication where now he's kind of got this spring in his step and this is like in a sense her plan worked perfectly yeah too well right yeah maybe a little bit more like roundabout than she intended but it's another one of these scenarios where she's like okay I see what happened here and It ends with her, like, never really telling him, right, that she was the one that wrote it. Like, she just has to kind of grin and bear it while he's like, yeah, what can I say? I'm a heartbreaker. All the ladies at the office. Yeah, they can't get enough of me. But then he comes clean and is and she's like, so did anything happen at work today? Trying to get out from him whether or not the flowers came. And he's like, you know, we always said we'd be honest with each other. So I need to tell you what happened. And so he tells her his version of the story which is carol sent him flowers and he had to let her down easy and so you know i guess i'm just not worried about getting old anymore because i still got it honey and like midway through this whole explanation you see louise's face change and she decides you know what it wasn't how i wanted it to work but it still worked like the end result was the same he still thinks he's hot shit again and so she just sort of like placates it and and smiles away through it and then he's like all right come on baby why don't we go to bed so she got what she wanted which is a little bit of randy time yeah no and it's fun but you do see here the seeds of what you hate so much in those later shows the idea that the lady has to kind of suffer in silence or grin and bear it or just kind of like roll her eyes while the guy is oblivious and is sort of having his needs tended to without even appreciating it or understanding it. Like in in this show, it's very sort of cute and loving and right. healthy and we all kind of laugh at him. Exactly. And, and it's fine. It's done in a way where he isn't made the hero because of it, which is important. Right. But I think that 
in a in a sense that never stops but it's it's just sort of like the emphasis of it the the attitude behind it does warp over the years when you get to the king of queens oh yeah absolutely when when it becomes that like childish behavior that people actually are like in the real world you know what i mean where this like this is fun this i i i I don't even know if i can put my finger on that line like where where it changes from this where you've got a guy who's playing a character that very clearly is like the butt of jokes and uh, like you know of his own making overly confident and kind of no one in his life supports that nonsense but they all support the nonsense because they love him and he's a good person at his soul and then it shifts to those other shows where you've got a dude that does nothing and is like failing forward his whole life and everyone still kind of because he's the man of the house sort of tips their hat to him in certain ways and that i cannot abide yeah but again you see you see the origins of evil (laughs) in, uh, in this show all right moving on to major dad season one episode 11 see the hill over the hill so what's your story with major dad this was a big thing when we were kids yeah, I, I was surprised that it was only four seasons because I just kind of have, I like sort of remember watching a bunch of this, but then I realized it came on sort of after or right before um, Designing Women, which was a big, like my mom loved Designing Women. So I think that would be why we watched this or it was just on. So yeah, I remember thinking it was kind of funny. The deal with this show is and we're still in season one, right? So It's supposed to be kind of like an opposites attract story. You've got liberal journalist Polly and conservative Marine major Gerald McWinney, McKinney, McWinney, something like that. And they come together and within like two weeks get married and she has three daughters. So it's like this guy who's always been sort of a buttoned up Marine trying to be this new dad and it's with a bunch of bunch women, right? If in, if the entire male half of the family were just this one army guy. Well, he's a Marine, so be careful. And because <laughs> they're affiliated with the Navy, not the Army, and they don't really like each other oftentimes. But it's a total fish out of water story of him being like, wah, girly stuff. And then also Polly's like liberal kind of ways. And so it's, uh, yeah, that's the basis of the series. And we are kind of midway through the first season. Um, And you already see him sort of fitting into his role. Like the girls call him major. They don't call him dad. They call him the major. And um, yeah, he's learning how to be a stepdad as well as kind of living his life as a uh, an older marine yeah this is very much i mean is there any show where you can communicate the entire premise in two words more than major dad yeah like that just, i don't that know says it, 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 all. it says it all it really does and i think even as a kid i kind of picked up on that like i i can vividly remember being like out at recess or something and some friend of mine you know we were like seven or eight or something telling me about this show and I had seen the commercials, but I hadn't seen the show. And he was like, yeah, you know, he runs his family 
like it's a military base. And I just remember thinking like, no shit. <laughs> Obviously, that's what the show is about. It's called Major Dad. What else could it possibly be? <laughs> but yeah, you know, this is just one of those that like we talk about in the 80s sitcoms, just getting very kind of silly and a little bit sort of parodying themselves with the whole concepts and premises behind the shows. And this was one of those to me where it's like, I'm sure it's fun. I'm sure it's harmless. But even as a kid, I was like, I'll watch my head of the class. I don't need major dad. So I've never seen this. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's unremarkable, right? It's cute. It fits the brief. It, it does what it's supposed to do. It's sort of like utilitarian. You've got some funny stories to tell. It didn't last long enough for it to get horribly shitty, you know, but it it just it's exactly what it is. Boom, straight down the middle. Well, where does the major work? Is this a school? Is this a academy of some kind? No, it's a base. It's an active military base. It's an active base. military base. They are based at, I think, what's called like, uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a made up camp, whatever, which is supposed to be based on uh, Pendleton, which is a major marine base. And so that is where they're in this first season, they're at this like Camp Pendleton stand in. And then in later seasons, they move to a stand in for Quantico, which is in the DC area. But it's so in Virginia. Is his main job instructional no like but so is he leading troops into war like i don't understand what he's doing <laughs> okay so you really don't understand the military right so the military like marine bases army bases are fully functional all the time with people just going to work just like normal government jobs to do what to, if not train other soldiers. Well, because not everything is always about training for this, that, or the other thing, right? Like you have normal jobs where it's like upkeeping radar or just like monitoring this or flying for practice. I mean, there's lots of different jobs that flying you would do. Flying for practice seems like training to me. Yes, but sometimes it's war games and sometimes it's just keeping your hours up, right? Okay. Or like working out the machines so that they don't just sit there and go, you know, nothing. But just like schools, there's always something new to be learning and doing. So, I mean, in a sense, yes, all military activity is in preparation for some type of battle, but there doesn't have to be an active conflict for okay. work to be done. I don't know specifically what the job of his unit is, but later on in the episode, we hear the lieutenant who is like the second in charge, right? We hear the lieutenant say to him, hey, you know, these guys would follow you anywhere because you're a good leader, not because you're the strongest guy in the room, right? So I get the sense that they aren't necessarily grunts that are going to go die in a trench if we had a land war somewhere, but their unit has a specific function that I couldn't derive from this episode. And he is in charge of them. So the training that they're doing is just like a hand-to-hand -hand combat kind of uh, upskilling. Like I would go for a professional development right. class one day. So he and his whole unit are going to take this class. And the guy who's leading the class is kind of running it like a drill instructor or a drill sergeant or whatever. But all the guys in the class are just like the same you would be if you were at work and having to go to a, you know, a, a an HR training. You're cutting up. You're like, oh, whatever. I'm going to learn how to do this. But also... 
So they're doing this exercise, like you said, where they all have to do this one specific move where they one of them attacks the other and the victim, as they call it, flips the attacker, right? And right. it's like this one maneuver and they are all sort of lined up in this circle. So it's a very like systematic thing where it's like the one guy at the front of the line goes to attack the victim and the victim flips him over onto his back and then immediately runs to the back of the line and to become the attacker. And then the previous attacker becomes the victim for the next guy. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. And we're all, you know, sort of doing this process. Right. Rather than having them all pair up, which is probably what would happen in like a normal situation. But because we want to be able to just focus on the one where the major is going to get flipped. Right. So they're going through this process one by one, and then it gets to be the major's turn to be the attacker. So just like everybody else, we've already seen like 10 people do this. He's supposed to like jog up to the quote unquote victim guy and get flipped right right and the victim guy goes like whoa hey i I can't flip you and the guy's like what do you mean no it's the uh, that's later that's the next one right because it's expected that he gets flipped when he's the attacker because that's what they're training to do they're learning this maneuver so he's expecting to get flipped when he's the attacker what he's not expecting to get flipped and what is set up in the little dialogue beforehand is when he is the victim right so when the major takes over as the victim and there was some jostling behind him in line because the guy who was standing behind him in line was like oh so you're going to participate in this right because he's a junior person like that you know the major is his boss so he's like uh are you participating in this major and he's like yeah and he's like oh great he's like so oh you're gonna be right here in front of me oh okay and as soon as the major turns around that guy gets out of line and goes to another place and the lieutenant takes his place in line and it isn't until the lieutenant gets up to face the major when the major is the victim that he realizes oh my god i'm gonna have to flip my boss so like the other guy asked a bunch of questions got out of line so he didn't have to be the one to flip his boss the lieutenant didn't even think about it till he was face to face with him and was like oh no no no, i can't do this i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try to attack you and the major's like why not like i have to learn just as much as you have to learn come on and attack me let's go and he's like no you're my ceo i can't do that so i'll just like wait and he's like like, no, I'm uh, like, I'm just like you. I'm not the major right now. It's an order. Come on, attack me. So he comes at him as like the lieutenant comes at him as the attacker. And even though the major is supposed to be the one who flips the lieutenant, the lieutenant gets the best of him and flips him anyway. So every attacker gets flipped except for the lieutenant right. because the major fucks up and can't do it. Okay, so that's bizarre because the way again the way this was playing out was like these were not fights like it seemed very like everybody just execute this move the guy's gonna come you know it's like like a dance or something Guy's gonna come you grab his arm you flip him everyone's sort of cooperating it didn't seem like you're gonna really stand off and have a fight and may the best man win well it's supposed to be grappling and the guy who's the attacker is supposed to go you know go for it and really try to attack him and i think what you're picking up on is just the fact that it's a sitcom so they were trying to do it like choreography like and it wasn't as convincing but no the setup for the scene was 
you know, you go in hard as the attacker and then see if you can do it. And and then the major just isn't able to best his lieutenant. And so that's the midlife crisis moment. He realizes that like, oh, man, I'm out of shape. How could I possibly lead these men if I'm not strong? You know, I'm a little bit embarrassed. And the lieutenant is like, this is why I didn't want to do this. Like, I knew this was going to happen and I don't think this is right and I didn't want to do it. And the major later on is like, no, 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 I'm not mad at you. Like, this was a really good lesson for me. I know I just need to keep working out and and get back into shape. Yeah, so this is a straight up, like, physical might crisis. This is like, I'm I'm not strong enough. I'm not fast enough. I lost a fight to my subordinate and you know like you hinted at before this is this all has to do with the major sort of erroneously thinking that his his power his leadership his respectability or whatever all stems from his physical sort of prowess and so he has a speech where he comes home and he's like from now on i'm devoting every waking moment to total physical fitness and he has this whole thing where he goes like i won't sit when i can stand i won't stand when i can walk i won't walk when i can run and he has like five more of these things yeah well Uh, one more he's like and and if i can run i won't run when i can climb and if i can climb i can use weights and he picks up one of the little kids and runs up the stairs yeah and so this i don't know he, he has a bunch of stuff that he does right and but his big thing is the weightlifting, right? right that's what really right. sort of does him in yeah so then you know he recommits by the way we should mention like he is very physically fit oh yeah <laughs> And frisky, might I add, with his wife. Like, the yeah. episode begins with well, that. Well, they're newly married. That's true. But he's he's in the same age range, I think, as as George Jefferson, give or take. This guy may be late 40s. I would say, uh, yeah, I would say they're probably aiming for him to be in his early 40s, not yeah. late 40s. And, I mean, at the time, he's married to Delta Burke on Designing Women, and she's supposed to be playing, like, 28. But, yeah, so he's he's frisky, he's fit, but he goes to the workout room with the guys and he's like, how much weight do you youngsters lift? I'm going to lift the same amount. And right. they at first don't even want to tell him. They're like making up fake amounts. Well, and this is the same guy who was smart enough to get out of line and not have to flip him, it, yeah. you know, in the in the training sequence. So now they're in the gym like next morning or whatever. And yeah, the he the guy keeps saying, Oh, yeah, I usually do, you know, four reps. And, uh, and I, I, you know, if you can bench your own weight, that's what you do. Well, how much do you do? I do 200 pounds. All right, well, give me 200 pounds. Well, how many reps do you do? Oh, I do four. Tell me the truth. Oh, okay, I do 10. And so he does they count them off and he does you know the 10 reps i think we see four or five of them and then the next scene well but we should say he does them like he barely like they really make you feel like yes the, you know yes. the effort like the effort. It's, he's really killing himself to do just the four that we see that we see yes and if if it went on any longer it would get boring right. so they it's cut sort away of, yeah it's, it's almost comical to think like how did that possibly extend yeah. you know the rest of the set exactly well and so so I mean, like my thought was he did end up doing all 10 of them because that's his mindset. He's going to do it because then the next scene we see him coming into his office. I mean, I guess we would describe it like the way you describe yourself right. as rickety. That's what I put in my notes was 
MD for Major Dad experiences major ricketiness the next day. Yeah, well, and I thought it was just later that day. So he, like, he has his head is like cocked to one side. He and looks he like can't Stephen Hawking, it. the way yeah. his head was like pinned to his shoulder. His shoulder, and he, his biceps are so sore and his triceps are so sore from the bench press that he can't like extend his arms away from his torso. So he, like, only has the use of his forearms and hands. So he can't reach to pick up the phone. He can't reach to get his coffee. He's like, he he can't, he can't use his hands to help him stand up. He like leans over at one point and puts his head on the desk yeah. to like help him balance so he can stand upright. Yeah. It's really well done. Yeah. No, Major Dad is good at the physical comedy. Like he plays it well. And so the, the lieutenant comes back in at this point right and they kind right. of like sit down and hang out and yeah talk so it there's been a, a little like the lieutenant felt really bad about flipping him the day before and then when he came in to talk to him at the gym when he was stretching the major like was like oh i can't talk now you know because he was trying to stretch and and so the lieutenant took a couple of those things as like oh the major's really mad at me so like this character the lieutenant gene is his name he is a little bit like the dumb jock kind of character he has he's not full himbo but he is a little bit like daffy right mm-hmm. so that's kind of like his character throughout but he's all heart as well so he comes back in having this miscommunication thinking that the major is mad at him and so he is like look we have to have this out you know i I'm sorry I flipped you, you know, I'm not going to hold back, but you need to understand that, like, I didn't want to do that and you made me. And the major's like, I was never mad at you. I'm not mad at you now. I'm not avoiding you either. I literally can't move my arms. And I wanted to get through the day without having to tell anyone that. So now I'm a little annoyed at you at outing me, but okay. And so he's like, but you know, that taught me a lesson. And the lesson was I need to keep working. Uh, You know, I need to work out more. And oh, by the way, we're going to have to have a rematch. And the lieutenant is like, Damn it, that is the one thing I didn't want. Yeah, and so they do eventually, they go to have this rematch. The lieutenant doesn't want to. That's where the lieutenant kind of makes his big speech, right? Like as he's sort of dodging this guy, like running around the little wrestling ring mat thing. The major is going like, you know, when that when that happens, when you suffer a humiliation like that, it makes you wonder if you still have the ability to command and the lieutenant, the younger guy says, why? Because you can't beat us up, you know, and he goes on this whole thing that basically says your leadership doesn't stem from your strength. It stems from, you know, the fact that we all respect you and we would all follow you into battle and take a bullet for you and everything. And it doesn't have to do with the fact that you're actually stronger than us. And you can, you know, it's one of those sitcomy things where that does resonate but the major's also like, yeah, yeah, but I still want to fight you. Yeah, like this, now it's just a point of pride. Like, thank you for saying that. I totally take all that on. I get it. But now I just want to take you down. <laughs> he goes, he goes, yeah, it's no big deal. Just a couple of kids tossing each other around. That's, That's right. <laughs> and then the very last second of the show is the lieutenant flipping the major again. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like this, that we don't get like a full, you know, full house-esque, like on the nose wrap up. We get, you know, a little bit of that, like I said, the lieutenant speech. And then it's like lesson learned kind of end of episode. Sure. And it's I think it's more like it's okay to get older. You're respected for different things. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, again, if the first one was all about I'm losing my sex appeal, this is all about I just need to stay in total tip-top shape. Which, again, for me, those are neither of those are really the angle that I approach aging from. But I do relate to Major Dad's thing of when you when you overextend yourself, uh, <laughs> you pay for it, and you might not be totally mobile the next day. <laughs> All right, moving on to News Radio. Season 5, Episode 13, Towers. Yeah, News Radio, I don't know. I just, uh, I was just not really hip to this show when it was on. You know, you look back on it now and every single person on it is a notable presence in one way or another. It's it's pretty amazing. Definitely just Stephen Root alone as like a sitcom boss is pretty much all I need to hear. Uh, so yeah, I don't have any excuse, but uh, this is yet another one that I was not really familiar with. Yeah, I mean, this was on when we were, or at least for me, most of my high school career. And so it was a hit or miss kind of a show. Like I definitely seen some of it. I always get the actress who plays Beth confused with who's the other like loud, crazy, um, redheaded Kathy woman. Kathy Griffin. Uh, I always get her confused with Kathy I Griffin. I was wondering, is that Kathy Griffin? No, it's a lady named Vicky something. But she, um, you know, they were both on like workplace sitcoms at the same time and she was the wacky one and in this one it's Andy Dick's the wacky one so this is how the world kind of like met Andy Dick and I remember watching some of this show and getting Andy Dick at this time confused with French Stewart who played the wacky character on Third Rock from the Sun but yeah so I yeah I was kind of shocked in rewatching this we're coming back to it for the first time in a really long time at just how like heavy hitting the comedy is like it's very fast paced dialogue you've got Stephen Root Dave Foley John Lovitz who this is the fifth season and this is right after Phil Hartman died John Lovitz had been a character in several other episodes but not the character that he plays now in the fifth season but he had been in several other episodes of this show and then was called in to replace um Um, Phil Hartman after he was murdered uh, in between the fourth and fifth seasons. And so interestingly, John Lovitz doesn't do interviews about news radio Hmm. as like a, I don't want to talk about it. You know, it was a very sad situation. Yeah, it's too bad we don't get Phil Hartman in this one. We get Joe Rogan, right? Spotify number one global podcaster in the world, Joe Rogan. Who else? Dave Foley, obviously, is the main guy. He's the perfect sort of down-the-middle straight man. Mm-hmm. And, Maura Tierney. Yeah, Maura Tierney is, uh, I don't know, She she's a good sort of like sitcom straight woman, right? right. She sort of like conveys intelligence. She's almost got like a young Sigourney Weaver-ish sort yes. of quality, like yes. a professional. But in this case, we are going to have not one but two midlife crises. Right. Uh, The first one belongs to Mr. Andy Dick, who, yeah, you mentioned him before. I was surprised to find how relatively contained and sitcom-y he is as a guy that knows him now as this just sort of like general presence in the comedy world and is very is just like a wild card and extremely sort of unfiltered and sexual and like you never know what the hell he's gonna do here he comes across as just yeah he's very good but he seems like very much a guy that showed up on time and learned his lines and is just part of the ensemble like everyone else yeah and i think the reputation that you're talking about sort of 
started with this show, the story of the cast of News Radio is that after the, their first year on the air, they were banned from the SAG Awards because they were all like whacked out being crazy. Andy Dick asked Helen Hunt to sign his penis. Like every, they were like, nope, you, none of you get to come back to the SAG Awards ever again. Sorry, bye. Yeah, well, consummate professionals in this episode. At least so it appears in the yeah, no, that's what I mean. existing footage. Right, regardless of what's going on behind the scenes, it, it, he just comes across as a very competent, normal player in this. And so he's turning 30, and I was relieved that we'll have an older guy have a midlife crisis later, because to me, a 30 is, is you know, that's, don't, don't talk, you know, talk to me 10 20 years from now. <laughs> but so he's turning 30 and he has the sitcomiest midlife crisis of anybody, yes. right? He is just straight up, it's my birthday, I'm depressed. What can I do? You know, let me storm off camera and come back in in a ridiculous outfit and an accent and be doing a whole shtick. Right. So his story, his character's name is Matthew. His story in in the world of news radio is that he went to dentistry school, is like a very competent and intelligent, could be successful dentist, but just doesn't want to do that. And he's also very childlike. And we see throughout this episode that Dave Foley's character just kind of puts up with him yeah. with that like, you know, babyish kind of mentality because he sees something there. You know, he knows he's really bright or whatever. But so... Andy Dick's character chose before news radio started to be a journalist. And so that's why he does news news radio instead of dentistry. And so that gets found out, you know, I think around like somewhere in season one or early season two or something. And yeah, so this is just he's he's sort of this eccentric kid anyway, that's just kind of doing something that he wants to do for fun, because he's like of that wacky generation X that, you know, they they don't have to have one career. They can have many careers. Oh, man, look at them. So he's like a slacker. I'm not even. I think he just he he is following kind of like what he wants to do. He's he, like a goodwill hunting type slacker. Sure. If he wanted to go off and, you know, do this big thing and have this big career and be rich, he could. But he'd rather just do the thing that makes him happy, yeah. which is a really interesting choice. So now he's hitting 30 and he realized that his whole life he's only ever followed the rules. He's never rebelled. He's never done anything bad. He's not like a drinker. You know, he's sort of a mild-mannered, immature kind of guy. And the biggest like thing he did in his life was just decide not to become a dentist and do this instead because he likes it. And so he freaks out and is like, well, I need to go through a punk phase. And so comes back in in like full punk makeup and a really bad British accent. Yeah. I mean, this is along the lines of little Gary Coleman coming onto the set in the karate outfit. And, <laughs> right. It's and very silly. Cheering. Yeah. Very silly over the top. And so, yeah, his first thing is, is I want to be a punk. And the funny contrast is that Dave Foley's character actually has like a little bit of legit 
punk background, you know. Right. He's he like, oh. was a punk when he was younger. Right. So he's like, oh, sure, I was into that. I, I know the bands. I went to those shows. You know, yeah, I, I know that. Show me the music the- you're listening to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like he's into it in a real way, you know, which which is by the time you're that age, it is sort of undetectable as opposed to the cartoonish way, which is Andy Dick and all the crazy makeup and everything. He's colored his hair. He's got the weird like kilt on like yep. he's that kind of punk he's wearing the plaid and then he's got like all the studded rings and bracelets and things so he's trying to be so badass but the funny bit about that right is that even early on he's sitting in the break room and he's got his walkman on and dave foley's character comes in and takes a walkman off and is like hey you know trying to get him to go back to work but like with understanding and he blows him off and puts the headphones back on and as dave foley's walking out he starts singing along with the song and it is not a punk song but you don't really know it unless you know that song that he's singing which is like some like 80s band really bad you know like steve winwood shit right so then later on Towards the end of the episode, when Dave Foley's character has had enough of this because Matthew is just being disruptive, right? Yeah. He's yelling at people and he's just being not not a good employee, not a good coworker. He comes over and is like, look, you know, I understand what you're going through, blah, 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 blah. Let me see the music you're listening to and picks up the CDs and finds a Bon Jovi CD. And he's like, that's it. I cannot abide by this. I don't care if you want to pretend to be a punk, but you can absolutely not listen to Bon Jovi and say you're a punk. That's it. You're done. Stop being a poser. Yeah, yeah. The word poser is thrown around. Uh, Yeah, he even, he has the German accent. He's kind of trying to be like the nihilists from the Big Lebowski. Yeah, but only for like one seat, like one line. He keeps going in and out of like the British. He goes through different permutations. He has the word mayhem tattooed across his chest. uh, Or stomach. Yeah, he keeps flashing his stomach and being like, mayhem, yeah! Yeah, he presages the... the Jared Leto Joker that everybody loved from uh, Suicide Squad. Uh, so yeah, he's having this very cartoonish, very sitcommy midlife crisis where there's nothing, you know, as as audience, there's nothing to chew on other than it's it's funny, you right? Know, it's like funny to watch Andy Dick be, you know, over the top. Yeah, and if anything, I guess his thing is like. FOMO, basically, like FOMO about life's phases. I never got to do this, never got to do that, sow my wild oats, whatever. Now, the other midlife crisis is Stephen Root, the boss. His thing is legacy, right? And so he's got a story that is basically straight out of Mr. Burns and The Simpsons. He is going to block out the sun with a giant tower. Is it an H for his name? Two towers, because his name is something James. Oh, right? Jimmy James. Jimmy James. So okay. he's got two J's. So yeah, they're, they're going to be, a, you know, it kind of looks like the old World Trade Center, these big gigantic towers. And when it's pointed out to him that they're going to cast a huge shadow over Central Park and people are going to be displaced and wildlife is going to be killed. He doesn't care. You know, it is, again, equally cartoonish uh, how sinister he is. Yeah. And it's really interesting, though, that like where he wants to build those towers, uh, the double J's, are kind of exactly where those tall skinnies live now at the end of Central Park, just 
beyond um, the Plaza Hotels. There's a joke at the beginning where somebody is like, what's that little building right there? And he's like, the Plaza Hotel. And I'm like, oh my God, that's where those ugly tall skinnies are that have ruined the you know midtown skyline now yeah i didn't think about how this actually is quite prescient how at that time the new york city skyline was what you know we have a certain generation sort of picture it as and since then all of these obnoxious skyscrapers have kind of messed it up well and his plan to get around the zoning restrictions yeah. is exactly the plan that now the lawsuits that are happening or or have already gone through about those tall skinnies right like he's like oh well it's going to be a 200 story tower but we're saying it's a parking garage and then there's going to be some things and then this whole section right here we're not even going to count as floors and that's how we get around the zoning restrictions which is what these tall skinnies did so yeah you know it's it's that idea of this tower is going to be my legacy again not something i relate to heavily because well, you're not a billionaire <laughs> yeah but i feel like you know we like we don't have kids and i feel like people like that's a thing for a lot of people like well you know my my legacy like, like there are other ways that people sort of like process that and i think think that I have that like a little bit with, you know, the work that I do, you know, our, our podcast could be our legacy. Perhaps. <laughs> but uh, Just me going on feminist rants <laughs> like every other episode. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'd say all in all, this is not something that really hits home to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've I've thought about the idea of leaving a legacy or like what it would be. And I think the the more you think about it, like the more it's not going to be a thing, right? So if you try to make a legacy, the worse it's going to wind up. And I think that's what we're seeing here is that he's trying to force a thing rather than like just being a good person in the world. And so that's why we end up with this uh, like obnoxious, ostentatious double J towers that dwarf everything and, you know, block off parts of Central Park to getting the sun and all sorts of things. But what I wanted to say about Stephen Root in particular, you mentioned him as this beloved character actor. So this is early Stephen Root, right? Like this was in 95. What year did Office Space come out? 99. 99. So he did Office Space at the end of the series. So he did not like the way the writers took his character. He didn't start as this kind of daffy, dumb, you know, overly eccentric man-child billionaire. He started as, you know, just kind of a, a wacky guy that was not stupid, but like mysterious in his intelligence. You couldn't really tell because he was just in and out as the station owner, right? Like that was his initial character. And over the series, over the years, he kept getting dumber and dumber and sillier and sillier. And he didn't like it, but he was locked in you know, to his contract. And so he's like, whatever. So he has chosen for the rest of his career only to do recurring characters, never a main character, so that he can back out at any time if they start doing that. Wow, that's interesting. He does have a main role, I think, on Barry. But at that point, I think he's working with people that he trusts and likes, and it's not the same kind of shit. And that was the last paragraph of the article that I was reading when where I read this bit. It was about Barry, and I didn't read it because Barry is my next <laughs> show that I'm going to watch it, and I don't want any Barry spoilers. Sure. 
So that's what's going on with him. The resolution there is ultimately going to be Mara Tierney, similar to the assistant in the Jackie Thomas show last time. She needs to kind of talk him down and appeal to his vanity and come up with creative alternatives. Yeah, this was the one storyline I didn't really like, right? Like, so her whole deal is that she's an investigative reporter at the station. This is a news radio station, hence the name of the show. And she outs his plan he tells her his plan to like get around the zoning rules and the zoning board and then she does a story about it and she's like you know sorry not sorry i'm like i'm gonna and then he gets accosted people are protesting in front of the station and you know so he's getting accosted when he comes in to work one day and she feels bad because she actually you know likes him as the station owner she feels bad that she you know revealed his plan or that not that she revealed his plan but that he's getting so much guff because she likes him as a person so she's like let's see if we can find a way to have a legacy for you that isn't damaging to other people and again this is the last season of this show we're kind of this show was close to cancellation every season it was on it never really like hit the top of the ratings it sort of muddled through And, you know, you can see that in like, there's a lot of funny comedy. They, you know, they've got good writing and good dialogue, but it just doesn't, it's not a great sitcom. You know what I mean? It's not like going to be at the top of anybody's list. So they just kind of eked by every year. And this is the last year. And yeah, it was just kind of dumb. It was like, why would she help this guy? Stupid. And it's just so that she has like something to do in this episode. By the way, we get like no Joe Rogan in this episode. Yeah, I didn't mind that. No, I didn't mind that either. He looks to me like Joey Tribbiani's sad brother. He's like got the same styling as him. He's wearing that same 90s V-neck sweatshirt, similar haircut, similar... I mean, Italian New York guy on TV in the mid to late 90s. Like you can't get away from it. He's just a little more muscular in a way that makes him like sort of less lovable and he's just like yeah he's just a little more angry or sad yeah i had completely forgotten that he was in this i sort of like remember him in my head from fear factor that sh- that gross show where people would like eat spiders and cockroaches and stuff which i never watched but it was like you know, you always saw the promos for. And then, yeah, and then now he's become this sort of weird, controversial figure with his podcast, always. Yeah, yeah, we, we don't need to deal with that. But going back to the Mara Tierney thing for a second, it's just so funny having watched the newsroom and stuff like that, or Succession, for that matter. Like, that story that, like, the, you know, somebody high up in the station would be involved in some sort of corruption having to do with zoning and building permits and stuff, and then there'd be a story run on that channel. <laughs> right, and that, that it paper, caused no and drama. <laughs> like, and that... The way it plays out is basically him going like, why I oughta? And kind of shaking his fist like Mr. Spacely, you know, and her going like, hey, buddy, what do you want from me? This is what we do here. And she even tells him, like, when he's telling her his plan, she's like, I'm a reporter, you know. Yeah, just the whole thing is so light and sitcom-y. And it, it just shows you, like, that could absolutely be a real story that had, like, a real edge to it, you know, or could have could have been played in in all kinds of ways. And yeah, they just make it, like, banter, basically, yes. for the two of them. Yes. Uh, but so, meanwhile, 
Andy Dick's next act of rebellion is he steals plastic forks from the cafeteria. Steals plastic forks from the ca- that, and that's it. And the security guard brings him upstairs, and he's like, "I would have gotten away from it, away with it too, if they hadn't twisted in my pockets." Yeah. And we get like a joke that the forks were poking him in the privates. Okay, I was hoping you would have more to say about that. I <laughs> no, don't really remember nothing, the context. No, well, and that to me wasn't even the the funniest bit. The funniest bit with the Andy Dick thing was him and John Lovitz, right? So John Lovitz has the desk next to him. And every time he would get up from his desk and try to walk across in front of Andy Dick's desk, Andy Dick would be like, nerd, 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 nerd. And so John Lovitz goes to Dave Foley's character to complain that, you know, Andy Dick's character is being a pain in the ass and nobody can get any work done because he just keeps doing this like nerd alarm thing. And but that was like it was funny just because of Andy Dick going nerd, nerd, nerd. And then John Lovitz like sticking a finger across the line, sticking a toe across the line. And they had a little, you know, when he does it low, Andy Dick goes nerd. And when he does it up high, he goes nerd. But in both cases, you know, Andy Dick or Steven Root, they just need their crisis to be punctured by somebody, you know, calming them down. Yeah, essentially. It, literally all of the conflict in the episode goes nowhere. It's like, oh, OK, like, how does a boss like Dave Foley just be OK with the crazy shenanigans of the Matthew character like the whole day and not actually nobody's getting any work done the only work that's happening is in the background there's always people sitting in the booth on the air but like the rest of the show is I'm like nobody works yeah is this what it was in the 90s to have a job I don't know I was in high school like you get paid to fuck around it's just very sitcom-y you know like there's just no thought to yeah anything other than like gags it almost is a little bit like Charles in Charge-esque in that way where it's just like oh what can we do to get Aunt Vivian in a you know funny outfit and a wig singing a song or something like it it almost is working on that level of like that's what a midlife crisis is is put him in a kilt and weird makeup and a German Accent. Yeah, or British most of the time, but yeah, no. Yeah. And so I don't know. This episode, while it had the, those funny moments, and there was definitely you could see the talent of the cast just in the way they were kind of handling some of the writing in the scenes. It was kind of meh. Yeah, no, I think it was fun. Yeah, because all those actors are fun, but again, it just has nothing to say, and it's not. It's portraying the midlife crisis as very much just like silliness that happens to dumb people that you need to like get them get past past. exactly like normal people don't have any problems but no i think it does follow that arc of what you've mentioned several times on on the podcast about how like you know in the 70s we had sitcoms who were that were trying to say something right like they were mary tyler moore was about being a single woman making her own way in the world and Archie Bunker was, you know, working class and, you know, the Jeffersons. And so like 70s and 80s. And then we get more of those family sitcoms in the 80s and things start, you know, getting silly, but we're still like going to teach you something. Now we're in the like mid to late 90s. We have been on the up economically for years and years and years and years in, in this country. And so there is no there there anymore. There's no story. There's no meat. There's no lesson. It is 
pure fluff. And it parallels what's going on in the entertainment industry at the time as well. Because now we're looking at like, this is Britney Spears in sync, Spice Girls, like this is all fluff. There is it's we're we're happy, we're wealthy, we're, you know, heading into idiocracy. Yeah, no, it's true. And uh, yeah, the sitcoms that would be sort of setting the tone at that time would be Seinfeld and Friends, where it is about well-to-do cosmopolitan people. And it's finding that right amount of absurdism to mix in with the everyday stuff. And that's that's what you see here, you know. Moving on to Two and a Half Men. Season four, episode 16, Young People Have Phlegm Too. Yeah, so I've seen my share of Two and a Half Men just floating around the reruns and stuff after work. It's a Chuck Lorre show, you know, so I've got a little bit of a bias against that. I think this was never considered. This came out in the age where these shows were competing with the major prestige stuff now on the cable services and stuff. This was never considered great. No, it's a CBS, you know, sitcom. And CBS was the one, you know, that was the network that they didn't even try to compete with the prestige stuff. They were just like, we do police procedurals for your grandma and we do sitcoms. And that it's all in the very like easy, banal range. But what you see at this time is the commingling of the movie stars into the TV world, you know, that was happening all over the place. And so... You know, someone like Charlie Sheen, where you might say like, well, maybe his his best days career wise were behind him, but he was certainly not washed up. No, and and we're still like three years away from full meltdown. Yeah, he had his whole crazy thing that happened a little bit later. At this time, he was a handful of years after being like a major, like arguably A-list movie star and still a pretty well-known bankable guy. And so, yeah, this was something that wasn't happening 10 years prior with somebody like that just showing up as the lead on a sitcom. Sure. And then you've got John Cryer, who also, you know, running around with the Brat Pack. Like these are major, you know, Hollywood folks that have now said, okay, I'm going to do TV. Yeah. That said, the premise is, you know, straight out of your sitcom playbook, right? This is three men and a baby, except there's only two men and the baby is 12. It's it's the odd couple, right? Like, yeah, And there's that totally. great scene in the kitchen where you definitely get the Felix Oscar vibe. Like they're leaning heavy on it. We're in, this is season four. Um, we're kind of like, you know, near the end-ish of season four, midway-ish through we're well established of who these characters are. John Cryer's character gets divorced in like the first episode and moves in with his brother, who is a very well off jingle writer and lives on the beach in Malibu and has this, you know, hedonistic lifestyle. And so the episode begins with an aspect of aging that I relate to a lot. Uh, the toll of alcohol on your body and mind and how that changes as you get older. Yeah, the all-night party has left Charlie on the table in, uh, you know, the early morning when everybody's getting up to get ready for work and school, uh, passed out with two bites out of a banana in his hand. Yeah, so he spends the whole scene 
lying there with his face down, completely comatose. And uh, yeah, so it's, you know, a very sort of classical, old-timey, funny scene where they're all talking around him and stuff. He he eventually comes to, right? And, uh, you know, they start talking about how his latest girlfriend is 25. And it's one of these, like... Uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta change your ways. Alan is like, Charlie, you got, you know, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep drinking all the time. You can't keep going after these young women. So like he has, Charlie has this different idea of like, yeah, partying gets harder as you get older, but it's totally fine. And he sort of brushes off Alan's warnings. And then we see him a few days later with his girlfriend, his like 24, 25 year old girlfriend. They've just had sex and she's like, let's go again. And he's like, whoa, yeah. give me some time. Now, this is also something I relate to. <laughs> There's lots in this scene because we get the one two punch because first, yeah, she wants to have sex again right away and he's trying to explain he he says biological factors is his term and yeah look there's no shame in it everybody when you get to a certain age everything still works just need a little more time maybe <laughs> a little more preparation you know? he's like i was thinking maybe we could just make some toaster pizzas and watch the daily show and then go again a little later right so the second half of this is she's like oh well if we're not gonna fool around then let's go out let's hit up the clubs or whatever and he's like at this hour and yes. it's 11 she's like yeah we'll get there early <laughs> yeah so relate to everything in this scene that yeah there comes a point where the romantic allure of having those late nights out on the town just kind of gives way to I can't stay awake for that. <laughs> I, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, when I was watching this, I was kind of remembering how much I used to like doing that and going out and being out late and like having those all night things. And now I was like, you know, I'm not I don't I didn't relate to kind of either one of them. Like I, I wasn't feeling like, oh, yeah, that's bad. And I don't want to do that. Or like, oh, I'm tired and I don't want to do that. Or even like the young girl being like, yay, I want that sounds like fun. It was more just like, God, that sounds really loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I guess a lot of that wouldn't have been to my taste ever. But yeah, so it's, you know, after all that uh, is when Charlie and Alan talk again. Right. And Charlie is like, she has a friend, you know, so do you want to come out with us? And it basically sort of forces Alan to kind of eat his words and be like, well, uh, yeah, it goes without saying, of course, I would like to date a young woman. Right. So they go out and first of all, they look ridiculous. Yes. I wrote that even for me, the most normcore guy in the world, Alan is dressed way too normcore for this situation. He's Everyone got is in black getting ready, like in line for this club in L.A. And both Charlie and Alan look like old men. Yeah, yeah. Charlie isn't quite as extreme, but yeah, he's uh, just he's wearing like a bowling shirt, which was his style. Like he always kind of wore that. But still, he stands out amongst everybody looking like hip and cool and all black. Yeah, part of it is just at, at this time already, uh, you needed to wear clothes that fit a little better, I think. Yeah. And Alan has his shirt tucked into his pants like... Very minor alterations would have made them look like not 
cool and hip, but at least not stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Alan looks like a 40-year-old chiropractor, which he is. So he didn't like he didn't attempt to kind of fit in with the vibe of the place that he was going. And that's one thing. Like you're never gonna like recapture your youth, but if you're going to a club, you can like try, right? Like if I was taking you to a club, I don't think that you'd wear your chinos and a plaid button-up. Yeah, no, again, I would probably not dress in a way that was particularly hip or appropriate to the situation, but I would make some modification to the overall like formality level. So I just, you know, so I could demonstrate some vague awareness of where I'm going. Right. You know, is this a whatever, a t-shirt place? Is this a nice pants place? Whatever it is. And yeah, obviously, you know, what's happening in real life is the, you know, the characters are being designed in a way to make them stand out comically. Yes, And of they course. do. And they do. And so they can't get into the club at first and the girls have to come back out and be like, no, they really this, are with us. This was a big thing at this time, right? This was around the same time as Knocked Up, I think, has the scene with Leslie Mann going like, doorman, you doorman. You remember that? Like there was a lot of scenes in the early 2000s, I think, about trying to get into clubs and how like the characters that we all know and love can't get into clubs. Right, because they're all a little too old to get in. And so they, what do they, they don't get kicked out, right? They just... No, they go and they, they have a whole night, right? But it's all off camera. And then the next thing we see is them the next morning, um, having just got home, they, you know, did the whole night, then they went out to breakfast, like you do, you're like, we used to do, you know, we used to go to Denny's, I'm sure you guys went to all night diners, you have that meal that is at like four or five o'clock in the morning, you're basically like eating away your hangover. And then you go home and go to bed around, you know, six, seven, eight a.m., right? Well, so they're just getting home and Alan's like, like making a pot of coffee because he's he's like, I have to go to work now. Like, this is why we don't do this. Yeah. And so they have another one of these, you know, philosophical debates. And Alan, Charlie's saying like, you're, you're lame. You're not, you know, if you had played your cards differently, you could have gotten some action there. What are you doing? And Alan says, I'm comfortable acting my age while you're in denial, right? That's his basic, uh, you know, argument. And then Charlie proceeds, or so he thinks, to have a heart attack. Right. So he gets this, like, pain in his chest after coughing up phlegm, and that's where we get the name of the episode, Young People Have Phlegm Too. And then Alan rushes him to the hospital, and, of course, we find out that it's just gas. Yeah. The doctor comes in. He says, you're a perfectly healthy 50-year-old man. And Charlie says, I'm 40. And he says, tell that to your liver. You know? Right. So again, I relate to that. You know, I did lots of damage to my liver. And that was something I always worried about was just being old beyond my years because being on, you know, unhealthy habits and stuff. So yeah, do we get the impression like having this little health scare you know, d does that make Charlie more conscientious going forward? No, absolutely not. But he is feeling down, right? So then after this scene in the hospital where, you know, he kind of gets a, a, the shock, he then starts just like 
making toaster pizzas and being home at 9 9 p.m. and not going out for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so we're supposed to understand that a few weeks have passed and Alan's like, Charlie, you need to get the hell out of the house. Like, come on, you you love going out. You're not supposed to go totally in the other direction and become this little old man who never leaves the house and a total recluse. Like, you, you need to find your happy medium. I have just the place for you. And he takes him to a cougar bar. Yeah. And I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised. Charlie is easily sold on getting together with older women. You know, there's none of this like, oh, boo, you know, I want a young, sexy girl. Uh, yeah, they go to this place. There's all these women, you know, they're not that old. They're they're the same age as them. Somehow. No, I think they're older. I mean, you got yeah, Morgan yeah. Fairchild, right? Who's yeah. like in her late 50s at the time. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess a lot of them are older. And yeah, they one of them goes, ooh, young stuff yes. when they walk in. And yeah, it's just this kind of funny little capper that Alan's like, hey, if you want to feel young, uh, hang out with older people. And so that is the one moment of this whole show that like, I related to. Yeah. Because being in theater, when I lived in Panama City, the theater people kind of, nobody in their like middle life years really does a lot of community theater you get like young people high school kids and some of like the local college kids if there's a little college in town and then you have retired people so for a very long time i was and through most of my 20s and 30s i was like this anomaly in community theater where especially when i was in my like mid 20s and early 30s in panama city florida where like everyone i was doing shows with was in their 50s and up. And so I had a standing karaoke night Thursday nights and I was the youngest person by at least 15 years if not more at this bar and I just always felt like the hottest thing you know I totally I was like yes I know exactly what that feels like heck yeah and it has been so weird for me to like come back to the world of the living and now I'm the old person when I go to karaoke what huh? yeah No, I think I experienced that even in the course of a single job. Sometimes I worked at one place for seven years and you experience being one of the younger people on the on the roster, on the org chart to realizing one day you look around and go like, oh, well, the owner of the company is older than I am and the creative director is older than I am and pretty much everybody else is younger. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. Looking back on these, I don't know. It's like. You know, when I was a kid and I used to watch the sitcoms knowing that they were dumb, but still kind of hoping for little nuggets of wisdom or things I could relate to about like dating or crushing on girls and stuff. I feel like with this one, I kind of had the same thing where I'm kind of like, all right, like what did these shows have to say about getting older and, you know, experiencing these, these anxieties? And frankly, you know, there were little nuggets in all of them but in general like we said i think even for sitcoms the shows that we that we picked didn't really take this midlife crisis concept seriously enough to really get a lot out of them yeah i they all of the shows did the thing of making kind of a joke out of the midlife crisis the person who was having it 
was kind of the butt of the joke, Which right? should, that's what sitcoms or comedy in general, that's what that's for, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it, they're not wrong to do that. But I think maybe the difference is for me, they're presented as the joke, but then the solution is also a joke instead of really confronting it and dealing with it the way you have to in real life. It's, it's always like somebody talking you down in a funny way or something silly or your wife tricking you with fake flowers or something. Right. Well, so here's my theory on that, right? Like all of these are relatively successful men. I think of all of the people that had midlife crises in these episodes, Andy Dick was like the least successful, right? But we already talked about his character arc as this being a total choice, right? Well, right? he's the youngest. And he is the youngest. So all of the men, they're all men, number one. Number two, they're all relatively successful men, yeah? And so I think that is part of it. It's like first world problems. You guys don't get to complain about your midlife crisis because if you do, wah, wah, you run the world kind of a thing. And I ha- I think that's sort of why. And I wonder, because, you know, we have a ton of these midlife crisis shows on our list. There are, there's another foursome of women having midlife crises for different reasons. And I wonder if those would be taken more seriously just due to like the social status of a successful man versus a woman yeah, it's interesting. Issue. Like, I think about it now almost like family feud style. If you were like, what are the things about getting older that make you feel anxious or insecure? And, you know, like I said at the beginning, mine are proximity to death, right? Like just your <laughs> own mortality. Right. And again, like window of accomplishment. And it's interesting how what this what these shows gave us was sexual prowess, athletic ability, material legacy. What is that? Looking like and your looks. Yeah, yeah. Your your phys- your your appearance. And so it's like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's a socioeconomic thing or a gender thing, but it's like the things that I find troublesome about getting older for whatever reason these shows didn't really focus on. No, and I think what you're describing are more like existential crises, right? Which oftentimes do lead to midlife crises for sure. But I wonder if we like changed our search a little bit to kind of look for shows like that. Maybe we'd get a, a little bit more heartwarming in terms of that understanding. I think the one, though, that hit the heartwarming, strangely enough, is Major Dad. <laughs> like it hit on the hey it's okay you know you're like you're still very well respected well, it's you know you may feel like you're losing a piece of yourself but you have gained all of this in terms of wisdom and respect and so in terms of dealing with it in a more serious way i think that one of all of them kind of got it right <laughs> no i think that's true and i kind of take back what i said as applies to that one because that did have a solution. The lieutenant explaining to him that your leadership isn't dependent on being able to beat us up. Right. And that because I flipped you in this exercise doesn't have anything to do with why we respect and follow you. That is a substantive resolution. And so yeah, that in in that sense was the best of them. I think 
entertainment wise, I would still give the MVP prize to the Jeffersons. I mean, how can you not, right? Like right. that was just, you know, sort of unassailable in terms of just their whole dynamic and everything. Yeah. Sherman Hemsley, is that how you say his last name? He's brilliant, a very funny actor. And I saw a lot of what we talked about with Red Fox, how it was just like the episodes were written and teed up for him to like have these jokes and do these yeah. things and move in a certain way. Like I, that, that show was written right around his comedy. You know, everything was teeing him up so that he could you know execute the punchline do the funny thing be you know even the butt of the joke but it was he it was like you as the audience were always in on it and so it was funny what he was doing and so yeah in terms of like a being a good show and entertainment value jefferson's knocked it out of the park and you get the impression that with her too there's a sort of like she did it backwards and heels type thing where like she's doing just as much uh you know stuff as Mm -hmm. he is yeah in order in order to like get all of that across i also you know i can't not mention the talent in news radio and the talent in two and a half men oh there was a funny moment in two and a half men in the hospital where john crier tries to say that he's matthew broderick to get um charlie attention and i thought that was so funny he's like do you know who i am i'm matthew broderick because it didn't even occur to me how much they kind of look alike Until that moment, like he has all of that kind of nebbishy quality that you always talk about Matthew Broderick oh, having. I think he probably lost countless roles in the 80s to Matthew Broderick. And if you see John Cryer as the villain in Superman 4, uh, he's got a little bit of that freewheeling uh, Ferris Bueller energy. <laughs> nice. All right. So much for midlife crises. What are we talking about next week? Next week, it's Thanksgiving. It's Turkey Day. Let's eat. We're going to watch WKRP in Cincinnati, Season 1, Episode 7, Turkeys Away. Seinfeld, Season 6, Episode 8, The Mom and Pop Store. The King of Queens, Season 6, Episode 9, Thanks Man. And It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Season 9, Episode 10, The Gang Squashes Their Beefs. Yep, we're squashing the beefs next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The sitcom study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. (laughs) 